Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 180, and I had a conversation with Jim Trick. We talked about his life as a morbidly obese person. At one point, he weighed more than 400 pounds, and eventually he decided that that wasn't going to work for him anymore, and he made a major life shift, and now he comes in at just over 200 pounds. He's a life coach. He's a singer-songwriter. He's a corporate coach, and a really fascinating guy, a funny guy, a deep well of a guy. During the conversation, I do want to make one correction. He uh, referenced a quote, uh, everyone is fighting, uh, you know, be kind, everyone is fighting a battle that you're unaware of or that that kind of thing. Uh, And he wasn't sure who the quote was attributed to. So I looked it up and uh, it's attributed to a lot of people actually. But the first known reference to that uh, is somebody by the name of Reverend Ian McLaren in 1889 he went under the pen name of John Watson. So be kind, everyone is fighting a battle is sort of the paraphrase of that quote. So just wanted to clear that up. Another thing I wanted to bring up is uh, for people who might need it, the National Eating Disorders Association helpline is 1-800-931-2237. If you or anyone you love is in need of help, Uh, please reach out to that number. And it's also on the links page. So if you need it, go to heyhumanpodcast.com. It's right there at the top of the page on the links page Uh, because we want you around. Usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. My personal social media is Susan Ruthism. Uh, You can also find me at susanruth.com. As I mentioned a second ago, heyhumanpodcast.com has a links page. Check that out. Lots of information for this episode. There's books, there's articles, there's reference numbers, there's helplines. So definitely check that out. Uh, Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. And also uh, check out the Amazon portal that is on the front of the heyhumanpodcast.com website. If you shop Amazon uh, and you do so through that Amazon portal, it helps support Hey Human. Speaking of supporting Hey Human, if you are so inclined, helping keep it an ad-free podcast, there is a support button also on that main page of the website. And I'm thinking it might be cool if you donate, let's say you donate five bucks or more, I'd be happy to paint you a painting. What do you think of that? Um, I just got all my paints uh, from Nashville delivered to LA so I can paint again, which is exciting. Uh, So for those of you at the sound of my voice, if you feel like donating to Hey Human Podcast as a thank you, I'd love to send you a painting. So uh, yeah, I'm putting that out there. Uh, I think that's about it. Uh, I don't have anything else to report. I think that's all. Yeah, I'm checking the brain, brain banks and that looks good. So let's get into this. Thank you for listening and here we go. Hey, Jim Trick. Thanks for being on Hey Human. Susan Ruth, let's be human together for a period of time. What do you say? Let's do that for at least as long as we shall live, I suppose. I'm about 40 minutes north of Boston, Massachusetts in a town called Marblehead, which is where all of the rich 
New Englanders live. That's fancy. It's the fanciest. I am not. I am not one of the fancy people, but I, I live amongst them and I enjoy their ocean views and their salty oxygen. I actually grew up, I grew up about an hour away from here in a town called Haverhill that's sort of very blue collar. Mm-hmm. And the joke that we make is the only way that you can get from Marblehead to Haverhill is in the trunk of a car. It's a good joke, a serial killer joke, which I appreciate. People, people in Haverhill don't like that joke. The Marbleheaders think it's hysterical. Yes, I'm sure. It's uh, funny. Do they do they turn their nose up knowing where you came from? That you're from the other side of the tracks. Yeah, we have enough prominent marble headers that also come from Haverhill that we don't have to worry too too much. Yeah, I feel like there's a TV show in this somewhere. Yeah, there actually it'd be really interesting. Somebody who like lives in Haverhill but works in Marblehead, and they have like these double lives where. On their way to Marblehead every day, they're pulling out a salmon-colored polo shirt and some khaki pants. Mm-hmm. And they're having a secret affair with somebody in Marblehead, uh, the daughter of a high-powered somebody, and ooh, yeah. scandal. Not club, because we have so many yacht clubs, it could be like not club. Yeah, although Marblehead is a great name for a store, uh, store <laughs> for, a, for a show, or a it's store. It's too. yeah. I mean, there's an air salon nearby called Marvel Heads, which bums me out. Nothing good about it. That's hilarious. Air well, salons have the lamest names. Anyhow, keep going. I love it. Uh, so we were introduced via text through our mutual friend, uh, who I adore, and I'm sure you adore as well, Marty Dodson. The lovely and talented multi-platinum singer, songwriter, country writer sensation theater also now theater playwright yeah yeah an all-around beautiful human being i love that such a good guy how did you guys meet we are i'm a touring member of a thing called banding people together where we work with companies helping helping companies give their employees a voice and enabling to sort enabling them to step into the best version of themselves when they're working with others. And we use music as a metaphor for that. And so uh, Marty and I have been doing that together for years. We've been all over the, all over the country together. That's fun. He'd be, he's a good, I've traveled with Marty before. He's a great person to travel with. He and his lovely wife, Candy and I uh, were stranded in Key West once upon a time and had a ball. It was so much fun. We were in Arizona for a week one time and Candy flew in and we were hanging out in a pool and there was a fancy party going on about 200 feet away from us. And it's nine o'clock at night. We've had a couple cocktails and she's in a bikini. And she says to Marty, I want to go into that party, Marty. And he said, you can't go in there. I want to go in there and get naked. You're not doing that, Candy. It's not happening. And then she looked at our friend Brant, who also is with banding, and she said, you're coming with me, won't you, Brant? And Brant was stone silent, and he's never silent. Candy Dodson makes a man speechless. <laughs> Especially in a bikini. <laughs> well, ba-boom. Ba-boom. Ba-ba-boom, Miss Candy Dodson. Uh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, you are a, a sliver of your former self, which is why we are in this conversation. That's Let's, a true story. I was a, I was a large, I was, I was a big bunny. I was a large, large man. And 
What you tipped out at the most at around four thirty, or were you? Big? I was four hundred and thirty pounds at my all-time heaviest, and I wore a size sixty-six inch pair of pants. And where are you now? I am two twenty-seven this morning, and I'm wearing size thirty-six stretch skinny jeans. Right on, man. Do you weigh yourself every day? I weigh myself most days. I weigh myself most days. I I spent a week in Spain last week, and I went up a bit, but that was a vacation, so it was intentional. And then I had a couple days where I had a stomach bug based on Spain. Spain, the sequel, was a stomach bug where it was a stomach bug where I lived off of saltine saltine crackers and, and Pedialyte oh, for eight hours. So I'm, I'm kind of like in this no man's land right now, but yeah, I'll be, I'll be two, I'll be 220 in a week. After we write Marblehead, the pilot will write Spain, the sequel movie. Exactly. And All it's right. going to white rice, bananas, applesauce, and saltine crackers. Oh yeah. The brat diet, right? Banana. Brat, why would you eat? Yeah. The brat diet. <laughs> I enjoy the bread. Although you probably do, you, do you do much carb? I do almost. I do almost. I do no processed carbs, and um, and but the carbs that I do eat are things like sweet potatoes mm, and kinds of carbs that are super good for you. I'm a potato whore. So oh yeah, yeah, dig them, dig yeah, them up, dig them out, and I'll eat them. Potatoes are kind of, but they're so. Good. I know. I know I love, and I love, and I, you know, I love, I love bread and carbs. And that was, a, it was a huge, that was, that was like my major food group when I was, when I was super, super large. I was yeah. eating. Well, let's go back eating. to the very start of you, shall we? Um, oh. What was your childhood? Because I think, I mean, just in general, let's just get this out of the way. There is a huge shame around obesity, people fat shame, people feel shame, people use food as a placation for all sorts of things, like all of that stuff. When you're a little kid, I don't know that, I mean, I see it all the time. I don't know that food, what goes into a kid's body is often regulated so much and now food is so different than when we were kids or I, I don't know how old you are but when you were a kid whatever and and you know now I think we really know what the food is and back then we didn't so where did your relationship with food start so my earliest memories and it'll it'll go dark for a little bit but it doesn't stay dark my, my earliest memories were being hit and being fed those, those are the things that I recall most vividly. So my relationship with my dad was very polarized, but there was, in that there were, there were parts of our relationship that were very Norman Rockwell and very beautiful, but he was in the, he'd been in the Navy for 22 years and he was a very sort of powerful, imposing force that could be very happy and jovial one minute and then become explosively violent. And so there's, and, and I was bullied really, really badly at school from a very young age. And my mom was an amazing cook, uh, half Italian and grew up in that culture. And so food was there to sort of like provide that warm, comforting feeling of being 
full. I, I would imagine that it's probably the closest thing I can imagine to what love feels like to a kid who's longing for it. I once had a friend who was an alcoholic and he had gotten sober and I asked him why he used to drink. And he said he used to drink because when he would, when he would take a, a drink of hard liquor, that burning sensation was the closest thing he had ever felt to love. So, so here I am, I've got, I've got this sort of like vicious circle going where I'm, I'm eating for comfort the eating is making me obese and the obesity is causing the bullying. And so it, it was really this unhealthy cycle and then not having a safe place to go to deal with what was going on at school. Or at home, it sounds like. Yeah, or, or, at, or at home. Did you, or, did you already from like four or five start having weight problems or yeah i can remember being in the third grade and we were reading a book called uh or a story called the fattest sultan and i remember a kid during recess not even like in a bullying mean-spirited way just looking at me and going you're the fattest sultan and that was the first time that I can remember noticing that my body was different. Were you active? Um, I was, yeah. I, I would say that I was active at that point in my life. Would run around and, and play and play kickball. And I, 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 I've been sort of like compulsively musical from the time I was little. So it was, it was, I was always more interested in singing or trying to play an instrument than I was with playing a sport. But I, I was as active as any other kids. And there are, there are a couple of key moments in my early childhood that sort of solidify for me looking back now that I would eventually become the morbidly obese man that I became. One of them happened during summer vacation. There were kids who would come to the playground near my house, older kids, and they would do like a summer program for the kids in the neighborhood where they play games with them and do arts and crafts. And after they, after they left one day, we were hanging out and some other older kids that were there started making fun of me and picking on me. And I went, I went home crying to my dad and my dad sort of dragged me up there by the scruff of my neck and embarrassed me in front of those kids and threatened those kids. And it just was like completely clear that that wasn't going to be good for me anymore. And so that summer I actually stopped going up to that playground and basically hung around my house and my yard and then um, a couple summers after that, there was something that happened at a swimming pool. Gosh, I'm, I'm a super happy guy now. And so like these stories are a little sad and dark, but I think, they're, I think that they're important, particularly for listeners who might still be, like most of us are, still trying to process their younger years. So at the core of all of this, I had held on to these memories as, as, as negative things. These are part of my story and I wouldn't be who I am without them. And I'm thrilled with who I am today. But that being said, there's a moment um, a couple years later in a swimming pool at a resort that we were at. And I went to jump into the pool. And as I was going, these two little girls that were 
playing where I was going in looked at me and said, you can't come in here. You're too fat. And very similar to not going back to the playground, I just kind of went and, you know, slunked back into the hot tub that my parents were sitting in. The two places where you could have been active then were taken from you as a kid. Was your yeah. is your father as a disciplinarian and as a military guy where health and wellness is drilled into them, pardon the pun, uh, did, did he take you aside and, and say, hey, kid, you got to shape up or... He himself had become obese and had diabetes that he wasn't addressing and high blood pressure that he wasn't addressing. So we had become a we had become a culture of eating the wrong food and way too much of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Stein lived across the street and his mom owned a diet center and she was the first person that I ever saw drinking a gigantic glass of water. And I was like, what the hell is that about? <laughs> Were you, True story. Yeah. Were you a big soda pop kid? Oh boy. Yeah. I was all, I was all soda. I was, I, you know, fortunate actually, Susan, I never had a huge sweet tooth really, but I uh, definitely drank soda and drank that American diet that we were all eating in the seventies and eighties. It was just all cheese and bread and pasta and candy and soda and like death. Yeah. Just Literally. Was it Tab and Diet Coke was the thing? Oh, my mom was a huge Tab drinker. And during my, the obese part of my life, I must have drank gallon, like hundreds of gallons of Diet Coke. Chubby people love Diet Coke. I don't know what our deal is. There must be some drug in there that is, you know, how they add an additive that is addictive. I also want to be clear that I'm going to unapologetically use words like chubby and fat and so on and so forth in the same way that if you're Italian, you can make Italian jokes. I still have a 430 pound guy who lives in me that I love an awful lot. And he and I get to say that if we want to. Yeah. No. Maybe listeners take issue with that. They can hit me up. The good good news is you get to be yourself on this show. So whatever you... Because we're humans. That's right. Because you're a human being and you've lived through an experience and you have the right to share that experience however you want to share it. Right on. Yeah. I'm a big believer in that. Um, You started to do the music thing in school or... Yeah. Well, school and home. So dad was the church organist. Uh, my sister was very involved in community theater. One of my brothers is a great poet and writer. Another brother is a fantastic guitar player. And then my oldest brother um, loves jazz. And so there, so there's a 10 year gap between me and my next oldest sibling. Uh, my, so I'm, I'm 48. Uh, that, that puts Jenny 10 years ahead of me, then Joe, then Jeff, then John. And they were just, they were music, music through and through. They were, you know, milk crates filled with really righteous vinyl. Everybody had their own turntable. Their rooms were double stacked with records. And so, and they had guitars. I wanted the guitar. They wouldn't let me touch their guitars. Finally, this is a, this is a funny story. Can I tell you how I got my first guitar? My sister had scoliosis, and so she had to wear this thing called a Milwaukee brace that made her sit up really stiff and straight like a board. 
And because she had to be in her Milwaukee brace, her scoliosis brace for, for so many hours a day, she couldn't play her clarinet anymore. So my dad traded in her clarinet and bought me a guitar. Huh. Right. Okay. But I, I, and all I knew was I wanted to play around with my brother's guitars and they wouldn't let me. Was your sister so, mad at you? <laughs> uh, um, I think she, I don't know if she was really mad at me, but I don't think she was thrilled about it. And she definitely brings it up occasionally. She's like, if it wasn't for my scoliosis, you wouldn't be doing half the stuff you're doing. And I'm like, I'm so thankful for your scoliosis. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I wound up, it's actually interesting, um, when parents say they can't make their kids do things, my dad made me take guitar lessons. He bought me that guitar, I took two lessons, I hated it, and he said, I bought you a guitar, you will take guitar lessons, and then he used the phrase that you never wanted to hear my dad use, which was, end of report. Dad finished his sentence with the phrase end of report. Nobody spoke. So he said, every Saturday morning, you will go to the Haverhill Music Center. You will take your guitar lesson. End of report. And the deal was that I wouldn't have to do it anymore if I was at the end of eighth grade. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I, my plan was to have not done it, but didn't work out that way. So I had all these things working against me, right? My last name was Trick. I was a chubby little kid. I loved music in all of these things in elementary school and in, and in middle school were like having a giant target on my back that just said, hi, I'm Jim, please kick my ass. It's interesting because music nowadays is humongous. If you're a kid that plays music, you are automatic rock star. And the, and the day that I showed up at the bus stop for high school, I realized in high school, it was cool. And that's when things started to turn for me socially. By that point, the eating addiction was so deeply seated that I now had some friends and I now sort of had a place. I had found my people. But the food piece was... Um, was was an issue and in the summer between seventh and eighth grade my mom and i watched my dad have a massive brainstem stroke in a train station so my father who had gone from being this really imposing powerful sort of chauvinistic guy who ended his sentences with phrases like end of report i mean this guy was six four he had hands the size of small dogs he's a powerful powerful guy and in a matter of one day he became um, a very, very solidly crippled stroke victim and lived that way for the next 24 years, for the last 24 years of his life. Mm -hmm. So it was like things in, in one respect went bad to worse, and I certainly wouldn't have wished the stroke on my father, but uh, it did remove the tyranny and it removed the violence which um, some of that damage, some of the lasting damage had already been done. But the fact that that part of it was over was very welcomed. Were you the brunt of his violence or did the other siblings? And also, did the other siblings have issues with food as well? My siblings would say that I got a much kinder, gentler version of my father and from stories that I've, I've heard, I believe that that's probably true. 
Although I wasn't there to witness what they went through. And because they were so much older than me, I don't think that they understand, understood the weight or depth of what I went through. Dig it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, um, it's kind of like, I think for, for both sets of complaints, I'd have to say, I think for both of us, we'd all have to say you'd have to be there. But food, food has been an issue for everyone in my family. And people have had different levels of success in overcoming. Do they, do you think any of them are, um, get mad at the fact that you were able to lose so much weight? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? Were they? I do. Um, I know what you mean. And I would say, I would say no. If I was going to be, if I'm going to be really honest and we've never really, my siblings, I love my siblings and my siblings love me. And it's sort of like having an extra set of parents, you know, it's really like having four extra parents. And I, I think that what they would say is that, um, I think that they, because they believe that I grew up with a kinder, gentler version of my father, and I was always perceived as being very publicly confident. And I don't think that any of them resent it. I think that they love that part of me. And my sister was a wonderful, my sister is an extraordinary performer. And she got, you know, every lead in every community theater show that she did could sing. She was triple threat. She could sing. She could dance. She could act. Um, And really, I think the only reason that she kind of had to retire from that was really because of her back. I mean, she had catastrophic back issues. I don't I don't think that any I don't think that they resent it. I, I would say no, but I definitely think that there's a rub probably in the way they perceived that I was raised versus how they were raised. I think that there were some opportunities. I think that the father that raised them would have never made them take guitar lessons. In fact, guitar lessons would have never even been an option for them. Sure. So I think they look at that kind of thing and go, yeah, you know. Jim had some opportunities that we didn't that we didn't have, and 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 my sister, and both my sister and one of my brothers, both at different points in their life were very committed to to health and losing weight. My sister went a little at one point, in fact, but yeah. You mean anorexia, or she would have diagnosed anorexic, um, but she probably was thin to the point where where we were a little concerned. Sure. Yeah. Do you recall when, uh, as a child, the idea of food was comfort and love, where you knew, as you're putting the food in your mouth, you're thinking, I shouldn't do this, and yet I'm doing it? No, I probably, at at a young age, I wouldn't have thought about it. I was a I was a full blown unconscious food addict, and yeah, it, 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 it's a little heavy and a little dark 
and I want to be really clear um, with your audience that in the years before, in the years before my father died, I had every conversation with him that I needed to have, and he was very willing to have the conversations and very gracious, gracious and very repentant for the way he treated us when we were little. But he, um, when when I was little. He would give my mom a grocery budget, but then he would do his own grocery shopping and he would like stockpile food that was just for him. So after dinner, it wouldn't be uncommon for my father to drink an entire two liter bottle of soda, eat an entire pound of kielbasa and a block of cheddar cheese after dinner, sitting in his chair watching TV. Wow. He would actually label things. He would write private stock on his food and you weren't supposed to ask for it or touch it or go near it. So there's all this really messed up stuff around food. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that's intense. Yeah. So the, so the fact that I'm where I am now is kind of a, it's really a miracle. It's, a, it's you know, I, I, I can't believe what my body can do now at 48 years old. Where did the uh, understanding start? Where because you were progressively getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Obviously, I, yeah. you were in your twenties when you hit that four thirty, or was that a? Yeah, I was in my late twenties when I hit the four thirty, and I was in my late teens, very very early twenties when I started binge eating. So that there was a one Sunday afternoon that I remember very vividly. And uh, all of my friends had girlfriends or jobs. I had a job, but when you, when you are the, you know, every school has to have a fat kid. And so I was always the fat kid at my school. And I had a highly developed performer part and all my friends were musicians and performer types or, or church kids. I had a bunch of church friends. And all of my friends at that point in time had girlfriends and jobs. And I, I was by myself this Sunday afternoon. And I remember driving through a Kentucky fried chicken drive through and ordering a family meal and a couple of drinks and then driving around behind the back of the Kentucky fried chicken and eating the entire family meal by myself. And it was the first time that I had ever binged and I didn't get sick. I ate every bite. I ate all of the sides, the mashed potatoes, the coleslaw, the rolls, and obviously the chicken. One of those drinks would have been a giant Diet Coke. And I felt great. I loved the way I felt after eating that. And that was when I realized, oh, no, we've really got a problem here. We've really, this is going to be a really big problem. And I think that moment right there, it's important to mention to people listening that your reaction to that is not unlike the reaction somebody has to shooting up heroin for the first time or snorting cocaine if they have that addictive gene, that, that thing in them. And of course, a backstory that feeds into the issue. Yeah, I had become really good at deflecting the fat jokes and yeah, I'm fat, but you're ugly and I can lose weight. And like, you know, those kinds of comebacks and sort of like um, getting away from keep, keeping away from the, the people that would be cruel, you know, by by the time I'm a late freshman, early sophomore in high school, I'm able to kind of keep away from the bullies and I have found my people. But the food was a problem and 
that moment in time during that initial binge was when I realized, oh, wow, this is not just something that is going to be like you're going to get picked on for it and it's going to be part of your life. It's actually going to be a really big issue. And your parents or your pediatrician, no one was stepping or even best friends were saying, hey, you're going to kill yourself. It's interesting. My pediatrician signed off so that I could be medically excused from gym class all four years of high school. And it was because I had allergies. And I think, I don't know, I I can only assume that he must have had a sense of what my life was like and probably said, I just have to give this kid some comfort. And so all four years of high school, I never, I never, one year, they, if you were going to be medically excused from gym class, you had to write a paper on a sport. And my father, who was a stroke victim, said, I'm going to write that paper for you. And he wrote me a term paper on basketball, the history of basketball. And, and I was like, wow, this is great. I not only don't have to take gym, but I don't have to write this paper. And my father wound up getting a C plus on the paper. Oh, and man. Susan, he lost his frigging mind. And he's like, I'm going to call that teacher up. And I'm like, dad, you can't. What are you going to say? I wrote my son's paper and you should have given me a better grade than a C plus. But yeah, so no. Uh, so no. And all of my friends were super athletic. But I think it's be- I think because I, I had learned at a, at a really young age that if I performed well and, and was impressive to my father's friends that have like escaped his wrath and so i was always funny always magnetic always kind of like the life of the party in, in my in my school if you were in chorus you were called chorus queer so there were chorus queers and band fags and i was like the king of the chorus queers uh, you know they were my people i, I was their their person and so no one was hassling me about the weight interesting not until later and that's that's a really important part of my story i think it's interesting too the where people who are anorexic and wasting away in high school versus the obese kids who are gaining weight in high school and how they are treated so much differently in our culture the thin spiration of it's something to almost admire in a sick Yeah, I I have friends that have lived with and survived anorexia and I'm not an I'm not an expert on anorexia, so I won't I won't pretend to offer counsel, but I will say that I think most people we did a poll a couple years ago, we pulled 400 people who said that they wanted to we asked the question, do you want to make meaningful change in your life? And 87% of the people that we polled said that they do want to make meaningful change in their life. But for people who are battling size and weight issues, we happen to wear our struggle on the outside of our body for all the world to see. And it's so easy to judge that. And to shine a light on that, because then the people who have inner work that they're that they're struggling with, they don't necessarily have to 
address that as long as they can shame somebody else. Sure. I remember in high school when I was in my issues with food and my friends all were as well. And for the girls, at least, it was almost competition to who could be thinnest, who could not eat at lunch, who could, you know, there, I mean, poof, it gets pretty bad. And oh, yeah, I know, I know. And, and it's, it's interesting, too, because it's it historically up until recent history has been one of those things where it's OK to make fun of the bad person. Right. And it's OK to make and it's OK to make fun of the, the, the twiggy person, you know, um, and I, I think that we are I think that we're moving beyond that. I would fall into the category of a person that says, I think we've all become a little too, I think we've gone a little, gone a little too sensitive for our own good. Oh, I a hundred percent agree with that statement. <laughs> Absolutely. The Which is why, you know, Hey, hey like I, I can honestly say I, I, I used to, I, I hated the morbidly obese part of myself. And now I can say, I totally love that guy. When I look at pictures of what I looked like, or or I, or I, you know, I still have a pair of size sixty four pants that when I give talks I'll hold up occasionally, and I, I love that guy now. And I think that self love is is really critical to transformation. But we'll get to that. I agree with okay. that statement as well. Where where were you in terms of all your friends are dating, and you're still using food as love? but surely you must have been interested in people and yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, because I was, because I, I had the personality that I had, I would occasionally have a girl to make out with or hook up with did shockingly well in that department for a morbidly obese church kid who, you know, just look, thinking about a girl was a horrible sin. But, um, yeah, no, I was across the board. I was generally always relegated to the friend guy category. And, um, and it was really, it was very lonely that way and very, very challenging. When you were in your church circles and, and attending church, and sounds like you were in a religious family. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yep. We were, we were, we were a church family. Yep. How were you and God in conversation regarding your obesity? I had a moment when I was a little tiny boy, and I, um, and I, I loved Jesus, and I didn't. I didn't know a whole lot more about what I thought, except for the fact that I loved my church friend. I loved my pastors. That part of my life was always very healthy and never manipulative the way a lot of people's upbringings in the church were. But I remember I was like really stressed out about something and I picked up my Bible and I thumbed and I just was like, we call it Bible roulette where you just kind of skim through the pages and you open it, you stick your finger on a verse and you read that verse. And the time that I did that, that had the most juice for me and I put my finger down and the passage that I landed on was Psalm 29 verse 11. And it simply says, the Lord gives strength to his people and he blesses his people with peace. And I carried strength and peace 
throughout my, to this day, uh, even though my understanding of God has evolved and changed and my views around faith are a lot different now than they were then, the idea of finding comfort and love and acceptance exactly the way that I was, was core. And I definitely cried out to, to God about the weight stuff. And God had a very interesting road that he was paving for me. So, yeah. So I don't think that I, I think that my relationship with God around the weight stuff was more feeling like I knew that I was loved exactly the way I was rather than feeling ashamed like I needed to change in order to get his love. And I think that that, mindset is true across the board for me now. And I know there are a lot of listeners that are probably feeling like if they're lonely or if they're lacking love and they are wrestling with this notion that they have to change and become something different in order to get that love, I would dispel that myth and say, you are not broken and you are worthy of love right now in your current state whatever is going on whatever compulsive behavior you have whatever thoughts you have about yourself or your circumstances you are worthy of love and respect and care and nurture partnership and companionship and i would take that even further and saying that every single person you see is also worthy of that and totally true yes and i we generally lash out on people that somehow remind us of ourselves in some way or another, whether it's I'm looking at this person who is morbidly obese and then I make a quick judgment, oh, they must be this, this, and this. Somewhere in that judgment, I'm talking to myself, whether I'm conscious of it or not. Totally true. Or and the flip side of that is are people who look to the left and look to look to the right and say, Oh, that person's life is so perfect. Mm -hmm. They can't possibly relate. I think it was either Emerson or Thoreau who said, Everyone is fighting a battle of which you know nothing. I can tell you from eight years of working as a coach, working doing one-on-one work with people, people everybody everywhere. Everybody has something that they are working on. And they can be the most traditionally beautiful, financially successful, this, that, or the other thing. And they are battling a deep, deep heartache. And so we need to, I think one of the things we really need to do, if we can... I'll often stand up in front of audiences and say, if you can hear the sound of my voice, I know that you've experienced heartache. I know that you've experienced disappointment. I know that you have been let down and you have let other people down because we are human. And if we can begin to really see people through the lens of the human experience, that is uh, universally true for everyone you're ever going to meet, no one gets out of life with heartache, then we can stop viewing people through the lens of what we think their life is like and actually see them for who they are, which is a perfectly imperfect human who is hungry for love. And then we can decide to apply that love. Absolutely. I was uh, 
I was waiting to pick up uh, a drink for myself and my friend at a bar one night. It was a pretty nice restaurant and it was crazy packed and we were sitting outside so I was like, I'll just go to the bar and order the drinks. So I went up to the bar and the bartender was swamped so it was taking him quite a while. And meanwhile, I was standing next to uh, three or four women, various ages, and they were all gossiping about a friend of theirs. They were saying how she gets blackout drunk and sleeps with men and then wakes up God knows where and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, she's had all these pregnancy scares and STD scares and all this, and they were really throwing out the judgments. And I didn't know these people at all, but I was listening and listening to their uh, <laughs> they were angry at her, understandably, because she had let them down as well and not shown up for things and, and betrayed them in some way or another. And I turned to the one girl that was closest to me and I said, I know I don't know you, but I guarantee you that the girl you're talking about was likely sexually assaulted as a child. Oh, interesting. And the girl looked at me, she said, what? And I repeated it again. And she's like, oh my God, I've never thought about that. I said, her behavior is absolutely indicative of somebody who's been through, if not that trauma, some sort of trauma. And so I, I beg you to maybe sit down with her with empathy and say, I worry about this, or if you need a safe place to talk, or at least give her literature or get her to a psychiatrist or whatever it is. But it's really easy to be mad at people for their behavior, but try and get under it and see where it might be coming from. Have you heard the band Dawes? Do you know who Dawes is? Uh -uh. D-A-W-S. They're a wonderful, wonderful band. Uh, the lead singer is incapable of writing a bad song. <laughs> but there's a line in one of their songs that says, the song is called Crack the Case. And the line is, it's really hard to hate anyone when you know what they've been through. And when they've given you a taste. It's... It's completely true. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's hard to be a human being. Yeah, it's hard to be a human being. It's like, you know, what Helen Keller famously said, the world is full of suffering, but it's also full of overcoming it. So it's really hard to be a human, and it's a really glorious, wonderful thing mm -hmm. to be simultaneously. And we, people like, you know, you and I, or like Marty, who's been such a dear friend to me, it's wonderful when we reach a point where we can see the beauty in both of those parts of ourselves mm. and operate from both places. Yeah, you speak a lot about loving the obese guy that you were, the kid and the young adult. And that is true. If you can somehow reach that person in yourself like for me my childhood was rot in in many places and when i can reach out to her that girl and say i got you and i love you and you're safe and it oh. sounds corny and hokey and people can call me a snowflake or whatever the fuck they want but i know how powerful that is well, I'll tell you, you know, I had that experience at that, I told you about that experience at the swimming pool at the resort when I was little. And about five years ago, I was driving home from a gig in Western Mass. And I took the exit to that same resort. And I wanted to walk into that space and see what it looked like today and see if I could connect with that eight-year-old version of myself. And it was fascinating 
this resort, I mean, literally apart from them vacuuming, maybe maybe changing the carpets, it looked exactly the same. And I walked over to that pool area, which looked exactly the same. And I so meaningfully connected with that little boy who was told, you can't, you can't come in here, you're too fat. And I had banished that little boy and and i'm not a snowflake you know like i'm i'm just not um but i do believe that we all have work that we can do and i'm courageous enough to do my work and part of my work has been reconnecting with that little boy and just like you said saying to that little boy i got you i have got you i love you yeah we've been through some stuff and the core self version of me hasn't always had your back. But from this point going forward, I'm always going to have you. You're always going to come first. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. powerful. And I didn't mean, I, for me, I, I don't care what anybody calls me. I get to own my own story. So they, people can call me whatever they want. It, it makes yeah. no difference. What, how many calories were you ingesting at your biggest So a typical day of eating for me would go something like this. I would wake up and I would go down to our bagel bakery. I would get an egg bagel with extra butter and an everything bagel with extra cream cheese and a large coffee. I would eat that. And then about a half hour later, I would have an egg McMuffin, two home fries and another coffee. Uh, At the time, I was working a straight job, so I would go to my office, and somebody would invariably say, hey, I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts, anybody want anything? And I would order a a sausage, egg, and cheese bagel and another coffee. Lunchtime would come around 12.30, and I would normally get the kind of thing that a person would have as a full dinner, and that could be like a Chinese like Chinese food lunch, or it could have been like chicken broccoli and ziti with garlic bread. On the way home from work, I would stop and get a double Whopper, but I would never get lettuce and tomatoes and those kinds of things on it because they could spill on your shirt. So I did a double Whopper, and then I would go and with friends would always be a grilled chicken salad like a grilled chicken Caesar or grilled chicken on a garden salad because you never wanted to eat like a morbidly obese guy in front of your friends. And then after dinner, uh, on the way home, I would usually pick up either a large sub or a large pizza and I would eat it by myself. At at my absolute worst, uh, late 20s, I remember a night where that had been my pattern for the day. And when I got home with my large pizza after dinner, my electricity had been turned off and I sat in the dark of my apartment with a flashlight before I called the electric company to pay my bill because my financial life was as out of control as my food life. And I sat and ate entire large sausage cheese by myself at 10 o'clock at night. Wow. Yeah. So, so I don't know how many calories that is, but uh, if I do the math right, I think it's uh, a shit ton. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, wow. What, what was the, you started, you were a pastor at this point, a youth pastor? Yes. Yeah, I was, um, I became a youth pastor and I was on staff at three different churches. And then in my very late twenties, and I was always doing music, like I was doing 
um, contemporary Christian music is what we called it back then and would and would go and do some shows and then in my very late 20s I left staff positions and would go and speak and and play at conferences like for youth for Christ and organizations like that Mm -hmm. and you got married in there somewhere yeah so yeah and so then in my like I think at 28 or 29 my sister had studied voice in England her voice teacher came to visit and she wound up falling in love with 430 pound Jim Trick and um I try to really protect her her privacy but I will say that I, I just was really amazed that someone could love me that way and uh, we're not married any longer but we were married for like 16 and a half years and um which is a whole nother story and, and and super super complicated but after our first year or two of marriage i decided to have gastric bypass surgery and i had i was terrified i laid down on a table at mass general hospital they cut off my stomach and I lost a ton of weight. And within three years, I had regained almost all of the weight. So I went from 430 pounds down to like 275 and then back to up to almost 400. Did your wife during this time try and help you to not or was she just unconditional? And um, She was unconditional. She, you know, her whole thing was always that she loved me the way that I was but um, was probably concerned about my health. But I think the first time I lost weight, it became clear that there was kind of like a mourning that she went through because you can't lose a couple hundred pounds without changing a bit as a person. And when I regained the weight, I kind of, I think, got back to more what she had been used to and what she had married. So there was never like a huge push from her to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you, had, really. when you lost all that weight, obviously you had not dealt with some of your underlying issue and that, that, so that you just basically fell back into habit. Is that. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't dealt with any of the inner world stuff. Um, I hadn't, dealt with it with a drop of it which is which is why it didn't work and why it didn't didn't last and the people at the hospital were like this isn't a magic bullet you need to know that this isn't a magic bullet it's a tool that you need to respect and i was like yeah 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 i get it. it's not it's, you know, it's, and guess what it really wasn't it really wasn't a magic bullet had anyone uh, mentioned therapy to you or had you thought about it uh, I was always open to therapy, and I had gone to therapy a handful of times for for different for different things. I had definitely done some intense therapy around my relationship with my father, and it wasn't until about eight years ago that I really was able to, through a perfect storm of divine intervention, and and that I cracked the code that would ultimately lead to my own change and set the course for my entire professional life for the, 
for the past eight years. As you were beginning to lose the weight again, and I'd like to hear how you chose to do that and what was your aha moment. So there's a couple questions in there. But as you're losing the weight, but still clearly overweight, I'm sure you still had to deal with things like flying on a plane or just being in public, going to the grocery store, if you want to go to a restaurant and all the all the judgment. Yeah, I, 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 it was really embarrassing to have regained the weight. But even before regaining the weight, which was which was horrible, there was you know the first time that I flew. My ex-wife is British, and the first time that I flew to England to meet her extended family, I had to buy two airplane seats. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't pee standing up. I'm a dude, you know. Um, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't fit inside a booth in a restaurant, ironically. Uh, you know, it, it's like uh, we would do recognizance missions to make sure the restaurant was fat people friendly. You know, places with solid chairs, that's that's where you went. So, yeah, it was a very, very limited, it was a very limited life. When we talk about, you know, body image and those kinds of things, for me, I think that one of the big impetuses for really wanting to have a fit body was that I wanted my body to be able to use all of the features that it comes with and i've seen some i've seen some really extraordinary like instagram posts from people who are very heavy and they're doing advanced yoga and i find that fascinating but for for my body uh in my experience with my body what i was able to do with the body that i was given was so limited and i knew that there were more things that i wanted to be able to experience as a human and as this human so i can talk about i can talk about the change if you want to go there yeah so about eight years ago i had really given up i was back up to around almost 400 pounds and i had really given up and i had just said to myself hey dude this is who you're gonna be just learn to accept yourself. This is who you're going to be. You've tried everything and you've gone so far as to have your stomach cut off. This is how God made you. This is who you're going to be. And then one morning, and I can't explain why, but one morning I decided that I would try again but I'd give it another shot. And there are people listening right now who can totally relate to that feeling of, I have failed at this thing over and over and over again. And you just get so gun shy to try again. But I said, I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna put on my sneakers and I'm just gonna go for a walk. And as I was walking around my little town, I was praying a prayer. And a lot of times when I pray, I just ask questions and wait for answers. And my question was, why do we know what to do, but we don't do it? I'm like, God, I know what to do. 
but I just don't do it. And you hear people say this in so many different parts of their lives. It could be their career, their job, their relationship, that thing that they've always wanted to try or change about themselves. I know what to do, but I don't do it. And I felt like the answer I got, and I want to be clear, it's not like the sky parted and there was an audible voice, but I felt like the answer that I got was, Jim Trick, you are a slave to your feelings. You make all of your decisions based on your feelings, and it doesn't have to be that way. And at that point, I didn't even have a counterbalance. I didn't even have anything to push against to counterbalance that. I just knew in that moment that that felt really true to me, that I was a slave to my feelings and that I didn't have to make all of my decisions based on how I was feeling. And I watched a documentary a couple days later called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. It's about an Australian guy who comes to America and goes on a juice cleanse and documents it. I didn't do a juice cleanse, but I looked at the title of that film, Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. And I was like, well, that sounds like me. I'm going to watch that documentary. Susan, three weeks later, I was doing a show up in New Hampshire and I got off stage and an audience member that I kind of knew walked up and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Her name is Gina Blaze. And normally, you know, like when you get off stage and people want to talk to you, normally they want to either just tell you how much they like the show or they want to they want to ask you some question about their own life and get some counsel. And I said, sure, Gina, let me just put my guitar down and I'll meet you over by the CD table. And she said, no, Jim, you know, it's actually taken me a lot of courage to come up to you and talk to you. So I'm going to ask you to just drop what you're doing and give me your ear for a few minutes. I was like, oh, okay. And these were the next words out of her mouth. Last week, I saw a documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about you, Jim. And this has to change. And I was like, what has to change? And she's like, your weight has to change because it's keeping you from being who you are. And we need you to be who you are. The world needs you to be who you are. Now, in that moment, Susan, I had the choice, right, where I could have either gone back to my hotel room, I could have crybabied, I could have done the thing that we do where we say, well, what about, I bet you have stuff in your life too, blah, 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 blah. And I could have done that bullshit crybaby stance that, oh, you're, you're being mean to me or you're judging me or you're this, that, the other thing. Except that Gina didn't have a dog in the fight except for loving me and wanting and wanting more for me and what she didn't know was that one of the thoughts that I had been having was that I wanted to become a life coach I, I just at different points in my life I've, I've, I've said to myself what do I really want my days to look like life coach became a coach trainer and I was thinking this would be something that I'd really love to do but it's probably unlikely that anybody's going to hire a 400 pound life coach I don't think I would hire a 400 pound <laughs> Um, respectfully, if you are listening to this and you're a 400 pound life coach, I get it. And I'm on your side. It wouldn't have worked for me. And so she said, um, she said, you're going to need to partner with somebody on this. And I said, you mean like a life coach? And she said, 
no, Jim, you are a life coach. That's the whole point. You are a life coach. And she repeated it like seven times. You are a life coach. You need to get a trainer or a nutritionist or something. But the reason you need to do this is because you are a life coach. And she said, now I'm going to pray for you. And I was like, right now, Gina? And she's like, right now. And Susan, you can imagine at this point, you're not going to argue with Gina Blaze. Like, she's going to burn your shit to the ground. So she prayed for me. And when we came up, when we came up from the prayer, I said, Gina Blaze, here's my commitment. Before you and God, I am going to, within nine months, because nine months is how long it takes to form a new life. Within nine months, I will have lost 100 pounds and I will have gotten certified in a life coaching curriculum. And nine months later, I had lost 115 pounds and I was finishing coach training. Wow. That was about eight years ago. That's and incredible. It's been no looking back. She and her husband, Danny, are two magical unicorns that I owe my life to. It's yeah. wonderful. So, yeah, so... How long um, after, I'm curious, the prayer walk that you took, did Gina Blaze approach you? How many weeks? I mean... During that three weeks, there was a whole series of circumstances and changes and ebbs and flows and me sitting and like diagramming what I'm thinking about feelings versus choices, goals, motivation, those kinds of things that I didn't even have fully formed at that point, which I do now. But um, at that point, it was all just kind of coming together. And I knew that just because I felt a particular way didn't mean that I needed to behave that way. I'd like to talk about fear for a second, because I think a lot of what keeps people from moving forward in every aspect is fear. Whether it's fear of the unknown, fear of failure, fear, 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 it's everywhere. And it's sometimes such a deeply powerful route uh, that it's hard to to get past that. And I know that you likely, I shouldn't assume, but I'm going to just say you had fear going in. How did you overcome it? Well, I'll begin with the idea that I think that we as a culture have really demonized fear, and I don't think that fear is our enemy. Um, I don't know if you're an Elizabeth Gilbert uh, yeah. fan. Yeah. She has a lot of great things to say yeah. about, about fear and how it serves us and how none of us are alive today if it isn't for our fear. And so it's about having, I think it's about having a healthy relationship with our fear. Absolutely. And I, I didn't mean to vilify it in that way. I, I meant to well, say. I don't think you did. Yeah, okay, yeah. good, good. I wanted to be clear there. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think you did. Um, I, I, do, I do think that for most of us, I think we forget the fact that from the time we were running from dinosaurs, our, we are neurologically programmed to fear uncertainty. And anytime you're setting out to make meaningful change in your life, fear is going to go batshit crazy and say, oh, what are we doing? Everything's fine. Have a donut. You're going to be okay. Um, so, Maybe saber-toothed tigers, not dinosaurs. Just got to get that out of here. Maybe saber-toothed tigers. Does Elizabeth Gilbert say saber-toothed tigers? I think she does say saber-toothed because dinosaurs and humans didn't exist at the same time. So They didn't? No. Oh, I don't know. That's okay. Actually... If you watch the Flintstones, ah. you find that categorically untrue because clearly they were battling. 
they wouldn't have even had a brontosaurus burger if they hadn't lived at the same such time. a good such a good point get your stuff straight here if you're gonna go archaeological on me you need to have evidence i've got the flintstones on my side sucker Hanna barbara for the win right <laughs> um so so i think that um well i would put fear in the feelings category and so what i have what i believe and what i teach in my experience i have come across very few people who have a really well developed intentionally curated set of personal core values and when i say core values i'm not saying like just going oh i value love and truth and honesty i mean like walking through a process where you really determine what your non-negotiables are and in doing and in doing that you find fuel that balances out fear sadness pain and you begin decisions that honor whatever feelings you're having because the feelings aren't the enemy I, I don't believe that there are good feelings or bad feelings. I think that as, relate, as it relates to the kind of lives we want to build, some feelings are supportive and other feelings are unsupportive. But if you think about your feelings as being like the weather, where they change all the time, and our values as like being a shelter from the weather that we can go to and we can say, I value health. It's one of my top five. I value health. And if I wake up exhausted, if I wake up with negative self-talk that says you're not going to work out today, I go, okay, I have good reason for feeling exhausted. And I'm going to work out because that's my commitment. I define success as making and keeping commitments and I define and I define fulfillment as living in line with my values. And walking this way for the last 8 years has been the biggest the biggest functional shift that I could have created for my own process. And so far I think it works for everything. My 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 values are compassionate connection impact, faith, health, and creativity. And every single decision that I make um, is made to honor those. And when I am not honoring them, my life is not moving in the direction that I want it to move in. But when I make and keep powerful commitments that honor my values, that, that are aligned with my values and honor my feelings, there's, there's nothing that an individual can't do. And I'm just going to preach for one more second, if that's okay. Now, I'll be really clear. There are two kinds of change. There are some changes that we want to make, and then there are some changes that we are forced to take. I wanted to lose 200 pounds. I did not want to watch my father have a massive brainstem stroke in a train station in Boston, right? So whether or not, and there are people who are listening to this who have, like, suffered catastrophic loss, out of the blue on a Tuesday afternoon, they got a call that someone they love was diagnosed with something horrible. And I'm not minimizing my experience or the experience of the listeners, but I will say that the path, the path through unintentional or desired change 
is the same. And in coaching, that's so much of the one-on-one work that I do with people is really try to do some personal archaeology, find out what matters most to them and what they can and discover what they can actually use to counterbalance feelings, negative self-talk that has kept them bound in some cases like me for 40 plus years. When Michelangelo was asked about the David, they said, how did you, how did you do that? And his response was, he was always in there. He just needed to be chipped away at to get him to come out. And I think, I think about that with somebody who's had the experience you've had, it must have been very much like chipping away to get the you in that was, had this other you around it. And it still is. It still is. I just spent a week in Southern Spain um, with my girlfriend and like literally I, I, I became aware of just more marble that needs a chisel taken to it. And it's done compassionately and it's done with self-love and, it, and it's done with intention. But man, oh man, I mean, are you ever going to reach a point, Susan, where you're totally done? No, absolutely not. I'll be, that's the day I die. I believe that between my curiosity and growing and wanting to get to the bottom of my own psyche and just every one of these conversations I have with other people where I see myself in them every time, even if I don't agree with them, I still see myself in people. That is, as long as that continues, which will happen until I take my last breath, um, there's, it's a never-ending process. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so with you. And uh, but, but I think the difference now is even though sometimes the realizations sting, in fact, most of the time the realizations sting, I mean, they sting. We all have relatively fragile egos. But after I get past the sting then I'm able to move into the process and really begin to do that sculpting. And I'm not saying that the fat guy wasn't beautiful because he was in his own way, but as those wounds heal and as the truer version of self forms and emerges and moves out, it's worth it. It's worth the chipping. It's worth the, it's worth the sting. It's worth the moments when somebody comes up to you and says, this thing has to change about you. And we, in those moments, have to stop being two-year-olds. We have to be self-aware and honest and willing to bravely look inside in order to really expose who we are in our greatness and in our beauty. Yes, my father says, and I, I, I know he's not the first to say this, but he's great with some wise words here and there. He says, you know, Susan, being brave isn't an absence of fear. Being brave is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Yeah. And it's so true. And I know he's, it's probably that's a Teddy Roosevelt or something or a Somebody said that somewhere along the ways, but you know, when your dad says it, you really listen. <laughs> yeah. Jim, how can people find you and, and learn more about you and maybe uh, reach out to you if they need to? Cause I'm sure someone listening needs to. They can reach out. They can find me at Jim trick, 
dot com. That's J I M T R I C K, just like trick or treat. Jimtrick.com. Um, I respond to all of my emails, and um, I'm ex- I, you know I've been doing a ton of work going and talking to groups and organizations all over the country for the last few years, and I have a very active coaching coaching practice that I really love. And then otherwise, um, they can you know on Facebook, Jim Trick, Instagram at Jim underscore trick. And I don't really tweet a whole lot. So and I'll put links to everything at heyhumanpodcast.com as well. Yeah, Jim, thank you for this phenomenal conversation. So fun. And I'm so glad that Marty put us together. You have such a nice way about you. Thank you. Listen to some of your other episodes, and I, I love I love the title, and I think you're really onto something here. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Keep uh keep kicking ass out there, and thank you for being uh, willing to help other people as much as yourself. I think that's it's a beautiful life of service you're leading. Yeah, it's self-serving in some respects. Of course, everything is. I'm okay with that, too. Everything is. And we'd be fooling ourselves if we didn't admit that. So, yeah. All right, friend. Thanks, Jim. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. 